Forgive me for repeating an illustration. I don't think this is even the second time that I necessarily will have used this, and certainly not the last, I imagine, but I do find it helpful. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I began to read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, uh, and it bored me to tears. I uh, just could not stand to continue, but it was an assignment, and so I did. And he just, he would write paragraphs or pages where sentences would have been sufficient, and he constantly jumped all over the place, introducing new characters rather than continuing to write about the ones that we already knew about. Uh, it was tedious, and it was frustrating, uh, until the French Revolution erupted, and in the last 70 pages or so, everything that he had written made sense, and I was utterly riveted. Uh, and it remains to this day one of my favorite books. Not surprisingly, Charles Dickens was a better writer than I was a reader. Go figure. But uh, I did learn my lesson. And a few months ago, I began reading Oliver Twist, another novel by Charles Dickens. But this time, I was prepared. Uh, as he bounced around to different places following storylines of various new characters, I didn't ask, what is he doing out of ignorant frustration uh, but instead, out of excited anticipation, it was more like, I can't wait to see how all of these details will play into the main story. Uh, and he didn't disappoint, of course. That's why you know his name as an author. Reading the Old Testament can be a lot like that. To an uninformed or inexperienced reader, and I'm not trying to be insulting about that, we all begin that way. Um, it's easy to. To an uninformed or inexperienced reader, the Old Testament can seem random and confusing, like it's always bouncing around and introducing new, irrelevant characters and places to the uninformed reader. As we continue in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we need to remember Matthew was not such an uninformed reader. And if we pay attention to him, we can learn to be better Old Testament readers as well, uh, which in turn will make us better New Testament readers because the Old and New Testament are combined are God's revelation to us. Let's uh, read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23 together this morning. Or follow along as I have. If you've not turned or clicked there, please do so, so you can follow along as we read through God's word. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they, this is the wise men or the magi we talked about last week. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son, end quote. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. End quote. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So I've mentioned Matthew's point as he begins his Gospels in chapters 1 and 2. We've covered the last uh, well, four weeks, including today. Matthew's point is to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the promised one. The one who was to come and bring Abraham's blessing to the nations. The one who was to come and sit on David's throne as king. Uh, The one who was to come, who would be the son of a virgin and the son of God. The one who who was to come, who would receive worship even from wealthy Gentiles. He has come and his name is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of these things. And to show, uh, to make his point very clearly, Matthew has provided five Old Testament quotations and shows how they point to or are fulfilled in Jesus. The first two of these five we've already discussed. Isaiah chapter 7. Jesus was conceived in and born of Mary while she was still a virgin. Micah 5. We talked about this last week. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Our passage this morning covers the last three. And the fulfillment of these prophecies, prophecies is in quotes, I'm not going to try to overuse air quotes today, uh, but the fulfillment of, fulfillment of these prophecies are different than the previous two, which is why I'm putting that in quotes. One of the prophecies originally points backward in time from the prophet. The prophet is looking backward, and Matthew quotes that as fulfilled in Jesus. One of them is clearly referring to an event that took place when the prophet was writing, prophet speaking about the present, clearly. And Matthew sees that as fulfillment in Jesus. And the other really isn't a discernible quote at all. Like I said, those three things, something in the past from the prophet himself, something in the present, and then something that really finds no explicit referent, all those things are very different from a virgin will conceive, a virgin has conceived. Right? So we need to understand first, and coming to this passage, we need to understand uh, fulfillment or understand, fulfillment language, or understanding the, the word, the idea of fulfilled. What does that mean? And two things are absolutely necessary for us to grasp, to understand this passage, really, um, any passage, but especially this passage. The first one is, is uh, it's like, well, that's a gimme. Why are you even bothering? I was like, well, got to lay this foundation. To understand fulfillment language properly, we need to know this. First, that God is the ultimate author of scripture, all of scripture. Um, Moses's pen or stylus or chisel or whatever that was, um, the hand of God was behind that. All of scripture breathed out from his mouth, his very words. God is the author of scripture. Psalm 23, David, yes. God, yes. 
right? Same of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Hosea, Haggai. Remember, that's the lesson of the year, not Haggai. Haggai, say it right. Um, Samuel, right? Even Hannah that we prayed together today. Hannah spoke and prayed. It was the Lord. How do we know that? Because it's in his word, okay? God is the ultimate author of scripture. In all of the Bible, every word, every original letter is the perfect revelation of God without error or mistake or slip up. And as God is eternal, wise, and the source of truth, his word shares these same characteristics. None of what happens in the Bible or is included in the Bible or is, or is excluded from the Bible is accidental or coincidental. It is all perfectly purposeful, spoken from the mouth of the eternal one who inhabits eternity and knows the end from the beginning. Right? So any passage that we consider, we must remember that God is the ultimate author of it. And the second thing that we need to understand is that fulfill means more than we think. That word fulfilled is not just a verbal prophecy made about the future and kept. Like, like when we first come to fulfill, we think, oh, virgin will conceive and then virgin has conceived, right? That, that is fulfillment. That's not all of fulfillment. And this is what we need to understand. And it's really, really important because if we can't move beyond just verbal predictions taking place, if we can't understand that fulfilled is a bigger word than that, uh, these passages in Matthew 2 and in other places, they really won't make sense. And so if we want to understand what Matthew is saying, therefore what God is saying, what he's teaching us, we need to understand that there's just a broadness to this word. Uh, maybe it helps us to understand that there are prophetic words, predictions like born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem. Okay? Prophetic words, there are also prophetic events or prophetic patterns. And God is revealing his plan in both of these things. The prophetic events or patterns are also referred to as types. We've spoken about these before. We've spoken about it in Hebrews, uh, in the Psalms, in Haggai, the signet ring. It wasn't just about Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel just passes off the scene. You're like, well, what happened to that promise? It's like, well, it wasn't just about Zerubbabel. It was about Jesus. Okay? But... It was spoken to Zerubbabel on purpose. He was a pattern. He was a type. He was a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. And so types, also we think of them as shadows. A shadow is a dim outline that comes from something more significant than itself. Not trying to brag, uh, but I am more important than the shadow that's cast behind me from these lights. They're just a dim outline. You can misunderstand, not quite know what's going on until you go from the shadow to what is casting the shadow. And then you're like, oh, that's what that outline is. The book of Hebrews, again, certainly reveals this more clearly than any other part of Scripture. There, the author says, you know, Jesus is the greater Moses. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a Moses. There was but he was a shadow. He was a type. He was pointing forward to Christ who is greater. Jesus is the greater priest. There were other priests, but all of that was shadows and types pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. And he goes on to a number of different things. The patterns 
of the story of God's plan to redeem his people are shadows that point forward to Jesus. I'll say that again. The patterns in, of the story of God's plan to redeem his people from Genesis to Malachi, those patterns that are found of God redeeming his people, they are shadows pointing forward to Jesus. And Matthew wants to, us to see how some of these patterns point forward to Jesus or are fulfilled in Jesus. There are three of these that we have and are all a little bit different. First uh, passage that he, he quotes prophetically pointing to Jesus in Matthew 2.15 that we read, uh, Jesus leaves Bethlehem, uh, Joseph takes Jesus and Mary, they go to Egypt, and then eventually, really later in verses 19 and following, Jesus will come back from Egypt. But here Matthew's quoting Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, out of Egypt I called my son. The original passage in Hosea is pointing backward to the Exodus when God miraculously rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. We're familiar with that story, right? In Exodus 4, God called Israel my firstborn son to show the type of fatherly relationship that we'd have and the primacy of place that Israel had among all the other nations. It's like, I will relate to them, not just as a God, not just as a king, but as a father. And I will care for my son, Israel, as a people. So he had this close relationship and faithful covenant love that God had set on them. And even though they were enslaved in Egypt, God had not forgotten his love for them. And he acted out of that faithful fatherly love to deliver them and bring them to the promised land. Now, Jesus was not taken to Egypt as a slave. Jesus was not uh, captured in Egypt as a slave. Uh, And as far as we know, plagues did not accompany Joseph and Mary and Jesus leaving Egypt. And so there are differences that we can see very clearly between what happened with Israel as Jesus, as God's son and Jesus as God's son. However, even though those stories are different, just as Israel was God's firstborn son, so Jesus is God's firstborn son. And firstborn son does not have to do with physical birth or birth order, but has to do with a special, unique relationship of covenant love that God had with him. And because of Jesus' supreme importance, that's firstborn. As other passages, Colossians and and Hebrews, that, that bring those out a little bit more. And other New Testament passages, like I mentioned, bring that out as well. Israel then was, the whole nation, was a type or a shadow pointing to, who do you think? Jesus, right? It's all pointing to Jesus. So that's, that's a good answer. All of that was pointing to Jesus, which means that God's faithful covenant love for those people was pointing forward to God's faithful covenant love for him. And the genealogy in chapter one communicated that in a different way. All of this was leading up in all these 14s, right? Coming up to Jesus being born, who's the son of Abraham and the son of David. Matthew 4, it's not like these two passages are in isolation. Matthew 4 shows Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel as a whole in other events that were shadows. In Matthew 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. There's 
40 in the wilderness sound familiar from the Old Testament? Yes, right? Israel, as a nation, having left Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now, yes, 40 days and 40 years are a different period of time, but it wasn't 38, it wasn't 64, it wasn't 12, it was 40. It'd be like, is that a coincidence? No. Okay, that's the point. God, as the author, does not work through coincidences. He works intentionally, perfect purposefulness in order to accomplish his purposes, that Jesus was tested because he's the new son. He's the new Israel. And everything that happened before is shadowing and pointing forward to him. Jesus would follow the path of the Exodus out of Egypt because, again, he is the new fulfilled Israel and he is God's new fulfilled ultimate son. So the prophet's speaking about something that happened in the past. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew's like, yes, he did. And this was a prophetic event pointing forward to Jesus, God's son, who would be called out of Egypt also. There's another passage that we go to, which is Matthew 2, verses 17 and 18. Herod, um, the wise men were supposed to come back to him. The Lord warns them. They go a different way. Herod realizes he's been tricked. Uh, I talked about his murderous rage last week, his favorite wife, whatever that means. It's good to have one wife. She can be your favorite. Don't have her murdered. You know, it's just basic lessons that you should draw from. Uh, Herod should have learned um, in Sunday school or something like that, but... um, can't treat this with too much lightness because he sends and murders. And whether that's a dozen babies or a hundred babies, he had them executed. And that's, that's like James is that age, right? You know, my, my son for no reason being murdered because of this jealous, satanic, murderous rage comes in and does that. And then Matthew uses an Old Testament passage to describe what took place. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. As Jeremiah wrote this passage, he was referencing the children, maybe young, maybe not so young, taken away and exiled to Babylon. Israelite mothers watching and weeping as their sons and daughters were rounded up by the Babylonians and removed from their land. Ramah that we see in this passage is an Israelite city a few miles north of Jerusalem, about as far north as Bethlehem is south. And in that place, we find that one of the governors or generals of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar used Ramah after they had conquered Jerusalem as a staging ground to gather all of the captives together prior to leading them into exile in Babylon. So this is a place of historical significance in this. It's a territory, it is in, excuse me, it is in the territory given to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, and his mother was Jacob's favorite wife. Again, that didn't go well in that story, never a good idea. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Benjamin was Rachel's son. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried near the town of Bethlehem. And so we start to see if we can picture geographically just a few miles north of the capital city of Jerusalem as Ramah, 
in the territory of Benjamin, just a little bit south of Jerusalem, is Bethlehem. And somewhere in that line, thousands of years before, the quintessential wife of Israel, a mother to the tribes, dies and is buried. And so having her burial place near there makes that place somewhere where she resides uh, by way of illustration, right? She's not serving over it like some sainted mother. But yet in ancestry, just they would speak about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. They can also look back and speak of her as the one who would represent all Israelite mothers because she was the mother of some of the Israelites. Does that make sense? So the people in places that are mentioned here where in Bethlehem, and maybe Herod doesn't kill all the way up to Ramah. He doesn't need to because the places and the people that are mentioned here are representative of Israel as a whole, heartbroken in Jeremiah, right? Starting back in Jeremiah now. Those people, those places mentioned there, representative of Israel as a whole, heartbroken over the suffering they were experiencing in exiles. Families had been killed, starved, or taken into captivity. They are no more, Jeremiah says, is the source of their weeping, because many of them would never return to the promised land. These families, many of them would never be united again on this earth, and some of them would grow old and die on the journey or in Babylon. It was almost 70 years before they would start to come back. So you can see how she could speak of them, these families, this time, these people, they are no more. This is the end And it was for many of them, not for God's people as a whole, but for many of the individuals. But the passage in Jeremiah does not end hopelessly. Rachel, the mother of Israel's children, is weeping in verse 15. But the next verse says this, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Do you see what's happening there? Despite the heartbreak of the exile in judgment for the people's sins, there is hope because of God's love and faithfulness for them. Right? This is in, this is in keeping with my promise, and there's another promise that I'm going to bring them back. Right? My mercy and steadfast love will not depart from my people, and they're going to come back. So this weeping, this sadness, this heartache now is not the end of the story. And as it continues to go through those things, that hope shows itself to be bigger than just the restoration to the promised land. Because we're in Jeremiah chapter 31, and in that very passage, the Lord speaks of a new covenant that he would make with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, one that would involve heart change and that we see in the New Testament, a new covenant fulfilled in Christ. So the solution to the heartache of the exile is not just they're going to come back, but actually they're going to have a new relationship with the Lord based off of what he would do. And he is Christ. Weep no more because Jesus is going to come. That's Jeremiah 31, and Matthew sees that and sees the fact that there is a hope for a restored future, and that hope is Christ. In the midst of devastating heartache because of sin in the world and the fallenness that affects all peoples, even God's people, 
there is hope. And that hope is Christ. That's Jeremiah 31. And Matthew, an informed reader, brings that to bear in these things. Matthew 2 is, a, is different than Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, they're being taken away because of their sin. In judgment, the curses of God falling on them. God had used Babylon to judge his people. It's different than what happens in Matthew 2. We know of no sin taking place in Bethlehem or the surrounding regions. We have no word from Christ, no word from God, no word from Matthew that God was using Herod to chastise his people like he was using Nebuchadnezzar. So again, we see differences in these stories, significant differences that are happening. Herod is less like Nebuchadnezzar and more like Pharaoh in the days of Moses, murdering infants for his own satanic, sinful, jealous purposes. But the devastation of living in a fallen world cuts into the hearts of Israelite mothers in the same way in both scenarios. Does it really matter, right? Parents, mothers, does it really matter how your child would die? Taken away in captivity or murdered by this king, does it really matter? Like your heart would feel better in one of those scenarios? Of course not, right? Equally heart-wrenching. The results are the same, whatever the cause, and the results are the Israelite children are no more, and the result is weeping and loud lamentation. But I think it's likely that in the same way as Jeremiah 31, Matthew is pointing through tears caused by sin in a broken, fallen world, pointing through tears to hope, hope that is only found in the one young boy who escaped the slaughter. His name is Jesus. Third quotation that's fulfilled is, (laughs) we don't know. This is an interesting one. Like I said, some of them, it's like, what exactly is the referent? Uh, Matthew says in verse 23, he moved, they moved to Nazareth so that, was what was spoken, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. And this is, in a way, the most interesting of the fulfillment of the prophets' words because there's no Old Testament prophetic passage that says explicitly that Jesus would be from Nazareth that he would be a Nazarene. But since we know that fulfill means more than virgin, virgin, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, as we know that's a broader word and we're talking in, uh, we can look at patterns, we can look at events, and we could look at words. Uh, it's not a problem, but what exactly does this mean? Some have suggested uh, that Jesus as a Nazarene could be fulfilled by him acting like a Nazarite. Maybe you've thought, the same thing, like Church of the Nazarite, Church of the Nazarene, probably just spelling variations of the same thing. But that's actually not true. A Nazarite is like Samson, long hair, no wine, don't touch dead bodies, right? Special vow for a period of time, whereas Nazarene is someone from a particular town, the town of Nazareth. So if you, if you think those are interchangeable, I'm just here to remind you that is not true, And so it's like, okay, well, maybe it's just like sounds like sort of thing, but it's not. And the other problem with this is that Jesus is clearly not a Nazarite, right? We don't know what his hairstyles were, uh, but we do know that he both made and drank wine. So if he was a Nazarite, he was a bad one, breaking vows to the Lord. If you break a vow to the Lord, that's called sin. Jesus didn't sin, 
So Jesus was a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. That's not the answer. Uh, Perhaps, though, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 11. This is a great passage. Does a prophet speak both of, of God's judgment and God's restoring mercy? Some would say, okay, called a Nazarene, Matthew perhaps is pointing to a different similar word used prophetically about the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 10 speaks of God's judgment. Israel is like a forest of big and majestic trees, and God brings an axe and just levels it. And all that remain are stumps, just devastation. Then in Isaiah 11, 1, so cool, right? Can you just picture like a leveled forest, totally cleared out? How much life is there? There can't be anything. Then Isaiah says, there's this prophecy, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And you think, like, this is almost preaching out of the passage. I got to stay away from that. But you've got like this whole leveled forest. There's no hope. And you just kind of turn your back and leave it alone. But God's at work. And this little shoot comes out from one of those stumps. But somebody at our house tried to chop down the tree a few years ago. So we have like the stump that's this big. And then we have the tree that's now taller than I am that grew out of that. There was still life left in that. There was still hope even when they chopped down that tree. That's what Isaiah is saying about the Messiah. What does this have to do with Nazareth? <laughs> well, the word translated branch in Isaiah 11 is, uses the letters N, Z, and R. And Hebrew is a language that uses consonants to communicate things. Vowels are just little funny symbols underneath. So N, Z, R for branch And how do you spell Nazarene? What are the main consonants? N-Z-R. It's like Nazarene, Nazar kind of branch. Ah, you see it? It's like, maybe, probably not. Uh, But maybe. I mean, he he is that. Like Isaiah 11.1, it's not like maybe that's about Jesus, maybe it's not about Jesus. No, it's about Jesus, but probably branch to Nazarene, is too far of a jump. Maybe. The final suggestion, what I think is most likely, is Matthew is recognizing that the town of Nazareth was a place of no importance, no significance. We might wonder why that's the case, or if that was the case, we could flip over to John. One of Jesus' disciples asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like the number of presidents that have come from Hurricane West Virginia or something like that. This, this disciple is asking, before he comes, he's not even a disciple yet. He's trying to decide if he's going to be a disciple, if he should even bother with Jesus. He's asking, like, who of any significance or importance would ever be born in such a tiny, ir- irrelevant, backwoods town like Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Shouldn't the Messiah come from a more flashy or important place? So then we ask, if that's what Nazareth or Nazarene would communicate to those people, we would ask, is there anything in the prophets that speaks of the insignificance and unattractiveness of the Messiah when he comes? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Isaiah 53, for example, as we have on the screen, he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should desire him. No majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So he's not quoting Jeremiah as clearly as he was quoting him earlier. He's not quoting Hosea, not quoting Micah or Isaiah chapter 7 with the birth of the virgin. But he's just like, you know, the prophets made a point. The point was the Messiah would not come in a significant way. He would be, he would be called a Nazarene. I think that's the most likely aspect of that. All of these prophetic references to Jesus from the Old Testament are meant to remind us that under the sovereign authorship of God, Everything in the Old Testament points forward and is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is always broadly true. The whole forest points to him and is often specifically true. Some specific trees and bushes point very clearly to him as well. Not every tree, not every character, not every event, not everything specifically and individually points to Christ. All of it broadly does and many things specifically do fulfillment language that Matthew's using. But as I consider this passage, there's another question that just um, pushes itself to the forefront of my mind. Because as we first read this, we're following the story of Jesus. That's the one that we care about the most. So we perhaps breathe a sigh of relief that Jesus was spared from Herod's murderous rage. But if we stop to think about it a little more, this may become a troubling passage for us. And here's what I mean. It's this problem of evil idea that God clearly knew ahead of time that King Herod intended to have a number of young boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas murdered. God knew this. Also, God intervened for young Jesus by warning his father, Joseph, in a dream, telling him to flee to Egypt. Not left open to interpretation. Joseph knew exactly what was expected of him and acted on it. So God intervened to keep Jesus from being murdered. But God did not stop these murders. And God did not warn any other parents to hide their sons or flee from Herod's soldiers. How could he have done that? Could have killed Herod. A later one of Herod's descendants drops dead because of their sin. That's not a problem. How many times in the Old Testament were kings (laughs) executed by God or executed in judgment by a righteous follower of God, easy to happen, did not happen. Soldiers could have forgotten uh, where Bethlehem was. They could have all just gone blind and been led to a completely different area. God doesn't do that. God did do that. We could think of a whole bunch of different scenarios or just, hey, you're going to appear to Joseph in a dream. Why don't you appear to everybody else? You're not going to stop Herod. You're not going to stop the soldiers. You could at least warn them. They could all flee. They show up and be like, actually, we've never had any young boys here. That's not what happened. So the natural question would be, why not? And this is an example in Scripture of what is often called the problem of evil. No one who lives long in this world recognizes, uh, fails to recognize bad things happen frequently. You haven't realized that yet? Probably just haven't been paying attention. Sometimes these bad things are caused maliciously by evil people like happened in this story. Other times they happen in a way that appears random. House fires. Not in judgment. Not out of God's control. So why? 
whether it happens maliciously by either people, whether it happens in a, with apparent randomness, um, both scenarios break our hearts, whatever that evil might be. I mean, death, death from cancer, death from plane crash. I'll just say it, right? And the question that often follows is, where was God when that happened? And some people, as they consider the evil and brokenness of our world and what the scriptures claim about God, have asked these questions. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and truly all-good, why doesn't he stop the evil? If he's all-knowing, he knew it was going to happen, right? If he's all-powerful, he could have stopped it, right? If he's all-good, he would stop it, right? After all, that's what we would do. And God must act in the way that we would act if he's going to be good. That's, that, that's not true. What would we do? I mean, who, who here would not warn parents that their young infant sons were in danger? So since God didn't stop Herod or his soldiers, didn't warn any other parents beyond Joseph, what are we to conclude? We would say, well, was God ignorant? No. I mean, he, he clearly demonstrated he was not. Was God impotent, unable to stop it? Clearly no. So is God evil, as some people would say, for not stopping all the evil that he knows about and is able to stop? And through trust in God and faith in his word, we say no to that question. God is not ignorant. God is not impotent. God is not evil. God's word reveals God is wise and God is sovereign and God is good. Many have tried to make excuses or lessen God's perfections in order to justify God and absolve him of the guilt that we lay at his feet. Say things like this, well, God knows a lot, but he doesn't know the future, right? So, so he, yeah, he, he knows lots and he is all powerful could stop all evil and he's so good he would stop all evil but but he doesn't know what's happening like this clock is running for him as well the problem with that is time and again the bible shows that god does know the future the end from the beginning so if you want to use that lessen god's perfections to try to prove that he's better than you think that he is You're going against his word, and again, you're talking about someone who is not God anymore. Some would say, well, God is really powerful, but he can't stop people from making their own decisions. So the answer is this notion of this this free will. It's like, yep, God knows. It's powerful enough to stop, but he can't can't intervene and make make Herod, which king are we talking about? Herod, make Herod do anything different than Herod wants to do. Well, but the Bible actually speaks frequently of God acting on the hearts and minds of all sorts of people, especially key authority figures, to accomplish his purposes. We can go to one proverb passage speaking of this, Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart, Pharaoh, Babylon, right? Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Cyrus in Persia, Herod in Israel, Caesar in Rome. I don't care what empire it is, if it involves God's people, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Assyria, stay away from my people in Jerusalem. Babylon, go conquer them. 
Persia, send them back. Rome, call for a census. My son's going to be born in Bethlehem. God is in sovereign control of all events. Problem of evil, not new. I've got a simple solution. Simple but not easy. You know there's a difference, right? A simple answer that you can't quite accomplish isn't easy. So it's not a complicated answer, but it's naturally impossible to receive. How do we reconcile what we know of God in the Bible with the ongoing evil we see in the world? And the simple, not easy solution is faith. We must trust him. We must believe, not see or understand. We must believe that our God who knows all things and can do all things and yet does not do all that we think that he should do, that God is wise and good. This problem of evil, 2,000 years ago or yesterday, this remains a difficult mystery. What is God doing? Why are some children born and some children miscarried? Why do some people live to 90 and some die at 50 or 30 or 20 or 10 or 5? Why? And we don't get answers to that. Job asked and God's answer was, you need to trust me and I am trustworthy. Faith in the wisdom and righteousness and goodness of God. Faith that says his wisdom knows better than we do. And his righteousness is perfect and he can do no wickedness. His sovereign control is absolute. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And that is as true today in your life as it was 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. You must trust God. But it doesn't stop there because this text pushes us like Jeremiah 31 did. This text pushes us to the promise of salvation. It's just like the weeping and and, uh, lamenting mothers were comforted by God in Jeremiah 31 because God promised them eventual restoration. So the weeping mothers in Bethlehem, according to Matthew, could eventually take comfort in the fact that Jesus was not among the young boys who were murdered. This is the promise of salvation that is found in Jesus. He was spared in Bethlehem as a child, not out of an unjust favoritism, but because he was ordained to die as an adult on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Although he knew no sin, he would be made sin for us. Although he deserved God's favor and blessing, he bore the full weight of the wrath and curse of God that we deserved. Jesus did not escape suffering and death as his family fled Bethlehem. He didn't escape it. He took several steps closer to it. Steps closer to the greatest suffering that any human could, would, has ever experienced. You can't be like, oh, he dodged a bullet in Bethlehem. What, to step in front of the train of God's wrath that would come on him at Calvary? 
See, Jesus could not have died as an infant and still fulfill God's plan of salvation for us. It wasn't just any human being that would come and die. Our salvation requires a perfect, righteous life that would be offered as a sacrificial death. Jesus had to be tested and tried according to the perfect standard of God's law, and he did that for 33 years, and he had to live before he could die as our sacrifice. And over the course of those years, what had not yet happened when he flees from Bethlehem is that Jesus would still have to endure temptation in every way like we have, yet without sinning, all so he could actually qualify as our Savior. Jesus did not live a life of comfort and ease. It wasn't like Joseph was warned every time that he was about to hit his thumb with a hammer or he never got any type of sickness. Jesus was not spared suffering. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And that wasn't like, oh, there's grief over there. That's like, this is my close friend, grief that I know so well who has walked with me through life. He was despised. He was rejected by his people. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. And then he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised to bring us peace. He was wounded so we could be healed. The Lord, who is wise and sovereign and good, laid on his innocent son the iniquity of us all, crushing him and putting him to grief so that we could be forgiven. The same God who intervened to spare Jesus as a child turned his back on him in righteous anger as an adult when he was on the cross. And all this was God demonstrating his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know all the ways in which the brokenness and sinfulness of this fallen world has pierced your soul and caused you to weep. I know some of it. None of us could ever know fully the sorrows borne by another, but Christ knows And in one sense, the problem of the evil that infects our lives is solved by the promise of salvation that is found only in Jesus. So will you trust him? Will you trust him? Our Father, you tell us to call you you Father. You remind us that in, in Christ you are, we are your dearly loved ones as well. We are your sons and daughters. Um, give us faith to hold to your word that you are, you are good and you are all-knowing and you are all-powerful and you are perfectly in control of everything, bringing about your purposes and your will, your plan, which other texts we could go to remind us that this is for your glory, the end of all things. This is for our good, ultimately, the suffering in this life not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us and for us. All things are ours in Christ. Please give us eyes to see the hope of eternal life. Free our hearts from affections of this world. Set our affections on things above where Christ is. Thank you for sparing him in Bethlehem. Thank you for not sparing him on Calvary that salvation would be possible for us through Jesus. Um, We believe, help our unbelief, we pray.
Amen. We come now to the table uh, to remember together, to celebrate the one who died for us. Um, We think about the birth of Christ, his advent, his coming. We must remember why he came. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, a member of Christ's Church, broadly speaking, then Christ invites you to come to this table to take of the bread. Remember uh, his body broken for, for us, his blood, which is the cup of the new covenant, the promise of salvation, the hope of eternal life in Christ. Uh, so you don't have to be a member of Risen King to come forward. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, then we, we invite you to come. If you're not, uh, not, a, not a Christian, not, not a believer, not not, I'm not saying it's like if you struggle to trust because of that problem of evil or anything else. That's, that's not what I mean. Not you have perfect faith. Uh, but if you ex- accept by faith the promise of eternal life that Jesus has offered, then, then he calls you to come and to remember and to worship him, to taste of him in this way. But if you're not a follower of Christ re- rejecting those things, then, don't, then we just ask you to not come. Um, to remain in your seat, not to try to draw attention to you, but this is, this is for Christ's people. This is an act of faith. Uh, so consider his word, consider what he endured for us and for our salvation um, as we, um, we who are not better than those who have not trusted but um, have submitted and repented, recognize that we are sinners. Um, we have done that and so we come uh, we are sinners in need of salvation is what we're proclaiming as we come forward to this. And that's true of you, whether you recognize that or not. Um, so watch, uh, pray, consider God's word and the good news of Jesus that's found in those things. All right? uh, the deacons will dismiss, come down, receive the elements.